We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Luke chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. You may all be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is incredible that you are a God who speaks to us through your word. You speak to us because you want us to know you. You want us to know how you are at work in our lives and in this world. You speak to us because you want us to know your character, who you are. And you speak to us because you want us to know your heart. You want us to know your loves, and you want us to know that you love us. You speak to us because you seek relationship with us. And so we thank you and we ask for your spirit to meet us wherever we find ourselves this morning. God, we pray that you would help us to hear you, the shepherd of our souls who knows each of us by name, and you know intimately whatever we are going through, 
You know what we need to hear, and you know how we need you. And whether we are unconvinced or convinced of who you are, whether we are here at church for the first time or we're at church for the first time in a really long time, Lord, whether we are here with intense pain and suffering and we're skeptical that you have anything meaningful to say to us this morning, Lord, however we find ourselves, we all need you. We need your grace. And so, God, we pray that you would meet us and speak to us and make Jesus real to us and make him magnificent to us in a way that would change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Resurrection Oakland. My name is Dave. I'm a, a, one of the pastors here, and uh, we've just finished our Advent sermon series, but we still have the Advent graphic up uh, because what we're doing today is kind of like an end scene. You ever see, go to the movies and there's an end credit scene? Uh, my family went to see Spider-Man and we all wanted to leave, but I, I told my family, you got to stay for the end credit scene. Uh, right? There's, you got to wait a little while and sometimes you're wondering if it, it's really going to come, but there is an end credit scene. And in these scenes, sometimes they're just fun and whimsical, and sometimes they move the plot forward, they move the story forward, and they help you get excited about what the next movie is going to be, what the next point in the story is going to be. And so today, we're looking at this passage, which is kind of like a Christmas end credit scene. Jesus is born. Uh, the shepherds have, have seen the angels singing in the skies. The wise men have brought their gifts before the king who was born in a manger. And weeks after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple. And there at the temple, they meet a man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. And this is such a beautiful and important story because we're all probably feeling some of the mixed feelings of the end of yet another Christmas season. Uh, you know, studies show that wanting things actually makes us happier than getting things, and Christmas is kind of like that. Psychologists call this hedonic decline. Uh, studies show that actually thinking about the things that you want make you happier than actually getting them. And the second you actually get the things that you want, your happiness in them starts to decline. But Simeon and Anna, they show us that when you grab hold of Jesus, your happiness doesn't decline. Your longing for Jesus doesn't decline. Your wanting of Jesus doesn't decline. It increases. That Jesus is the one gift that when you get him, you want more of him. And the joy that you find in him only grows stronger. And so we're going to unpack this passage, and we're going to see how the longing for Jesus satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts by looking at three things. We're going to look at a comfort that is bigger than you. We're going to look at a glory that is greater than everyone. And we're going to look at the grace that changes everything. So let's start with the first point today, a comfort that is bigger than you. In today's passage, we are introduced to Simeon and Anna. Simeon was so old that Luke feels like he has to explain to us why he's still alive. 
That's really old. He's supernaturally old. Luke tells us that God promised Simeon that he would live to see the Messiah before he died. And we don't know when this prophecy was given. Was it given when Simeon was five years old? Was it given to him when he was in his 50s? We don't know. In fact, what Luke says is that he was waiting at the temple. We don't know how long he's been waiting. It's almost as if he has always been waiting at the temple, waiting for the Messiah. Anna was an 84-year-old widow. Uh, she was widowed after seven years of marriage, and because in the ancient world, women often got married at around the age of 13 or 14, she was probably in her early 20s when she lost her husband. And because she lived in a patriarchal society where her best chance for living a comfortable life was through marriage and childbearing, everyone would have expected Anna to remarry, but she didn't. She lived at the temple, which almost certainly meant that she was among the poorest of the poor. And she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, Luke tells us in verse 37. So what were Simeon and Anna praying for? What were they waiting for? What were they looking for at the temple? Both Simeon and Anna certainly had their share of brokenness but the incredible thing as we see this passage is that Simeon and Anna are actually not praying for the end of their own pain, their own suffering. Simeon, Luke tells us, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon and Anna were not praying for the end of their own pain, they were praying for the end of everyone's pain. They were praying for their city. They were praying for their country. And through the hope of the Messiah, they were praying for the hope of the world. Simeon and Anna show us that true comfort doesn't come from being comfortable. You actually need to give comfort in order to receive the comfort of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6 puts it this way, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, even as he's talking about the immense suffering that he's experienced in his own life, he says, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. See, God doesn't comfort us to simply make us comfortable. God comforts us so that we can go out and comfort other people. God's comfort has to be shared in order to be experienced. And this is really hard because it can be hard to look at other people's suffering and to think about other people's needs when you are suffering, when you have needs. It's easy to minimize other people's suffering and exaggerate your own suffering. It's easy to say and think things like, you think you have it hard? Let me tell you about my problems. Let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about my pain. But if you do that, if you fixate on your own pain and ignore the pain that other people are going through, it creates a comfort vacuum. And you know what that does? 
that makes you demand comfort from other people. It makes you demand comfort from God, and there's never enough. You never get the comfort that you're looking for. You never have enough comfort to find peace in your life. You become a bitter person who believes and who is convinced that you deserve more than you have received. You become a comfort vacuum, a comfort black hole. When people are reluctant to comfort one another, everyone suffers. Can you imagine a room full of people demanding comfort from one another? And that's one of the reasons our country is so divided right now, isn't it? It's because we have, we've lost our ability to empathize with one another, to understand one another's pain, to understand how other people need comfort from us. Hannah Arndt, who survived the Holocaust and became a political philosopher, she writes that there are two things that define political fanatics, loneliness and spiritual emptiness. Isn't that profound? See, refusing to care about the pain of other people doesn't comfort you. It makes you miserable. It makes you lonely. It makes you empty and it creates intense division. The truth is, all of our brokenness, all of our pain is connected. In 1986, there was a nuclear disaster in Chernobyl in the former Soviet Union, and when that nuclear power plant exploded, uh, the entire town was exposed to radiation. And so if you lived in Chernobyl in 1986, you needed more than a shower. You needed to decontaminate the entire city. Uh, it didn't matter how hard you worked at keeping yourself and your house clean if you lived in a radioactive city. And see, God is showing us that his comfort is like a radioactive decontaminant. If you want to experience God's comfort, you have to share it. You have to look beyond your own suffering to the suffering around you, the suffering of family members that get on your nerves, the suffering of neighbors who just do not seem to be aware of, of how they keep their property affects the entire neighborhood. You need to look beyond your own suffering to coworkers that seem to always be competing with you and trying to throw you under the bus. You need to share the comfort of God with your spouse, with your children that you spend way too much time with. You need to share the comfort of God with your neighbors, your coworkers, your city. Now, can you imagine what a difference it would make if there was more shared comfort in this world? if we demanded comfort less from one another and gave comfort more to one another? What if there were more people concerned with the well-being of other people than they were concerned with their own well-being? What difference would it make if there was someone in your life who was fixated on making you, giving you comfort, who understood your pain, who took the time to understand your suffering, and who longed for your good and asked for nothing in return from you. Someone who only wanted to bless you. Now, some of you might be thinking, that would be great, but how is that even possible? 
The problems of this world are too big. My problems are too big. My pain is too big. The problems of Oakland are too big. Well, the only way to do this is to take your eyes off of yourself and even off of your city and fix your eyes on God. This brings us to the second thing we're looking at today, a glory that is greater than everyone. Simeon and Anna were frail. They were in the twilight of their lives. They were not going to feed 5,000 people like Jesus' disciples would. They weren't going to heal the sick or cast out demons. They weren't going to go on any mission trips. They weren't going to start churches. All they did was pray, wait, and tell other people about a child who had redeemed Jerusalem. And it's so beautiful that Luke tells the time to tell us their story here. Because what's great about Simeon and Anna is not what they do. What's great about Simeon and Anna is who their Savior is. When Simeon held Jesus in his arms in verse 32, he called him a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Those words, light and glory, have deep significance in the Bible because they represent the presence of God. When the people of Israel first built the tabernacle and offered their first worship at the tabernacle, God descended on the tabernacle in light and glory. When Solomon built the temple and offered the first worship service at the temple, God descended on the temple in light and glory. And it had been 400 years since anyone had seen light and glory in the temple in Israel. But when Simeon saw Jesus, he recognized that the light and glory of God had returned to the temple. He recognized that he was in the presence of God, in the presence of holiness, and he called Jesus the one appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel, the light of the world, the glory of Israel, the Savior who would save all of us from all our sin. Simeon and Anna, they show us that the purpose of life is not to do glorious things, but to have a glorious Savior. We are all wired for glory. This is what all of us are looking for. We are drawn to things that take our breath away. We need glorious things that make us feel small. Jim Carrey tells this great story of the time that he visited Machu Picchu. Uh, when he finally reached Machu Picchu, he couldn't enjoy it. He'd been looking forward to this trip. He'd been looking forward to enjoying this beautiful, this beautiful place, this, this mysterious ancient place with, with beautiful architecture and it's surrounded by beautiful nature. All he wanted to do was to stand in awe of something, but he couldn't because people wouldn't stop taking pictures of him. And this is what Jim Carrey says. He says, when you get famous, you become a world wonder which means you can no longer visit wonders of the world. Now you might wish that people would be in awe of you, would pay a little bit more attention to you, but if they did, you would hate it. 
because we are wired to be in awe, in awe of something that is bigger and greater than us. And that's why we love visiting world wonders. That's why we spend time and money to see magnificent sites of nature or architecture that existed long before we were ever born. It's because we are wired for glory. Now, not everybody gets to go to Machu Picchu. I haven't. But everyone can glorify God because the glory of God came to this world in a baby named Jesus. Every other glory in this world says, come and get me. And the glory of God says, I have come to get you. All you need to behold the glory of God is your need of him. There's this beautiful scene in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. The Pebbesy children have just discovered that their brother Edmund has betrayed them. Uh, and instead of being angry with them, which they were at first, they began to be overwhelmed with pity because they learned that anyone who goes to the White Witch's palace never comes out. And they started to feel sorry for their brother and worried for their brother. And Peter, the oldest brother, the oldest sibling, he starts to plan a rescue mission. He starts, starts to plot a way to, to, to storm the castle and rescue their brother. And Mr. Beaver, says this to him. He says, it's no good, son of Adam. No good you're trying, of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move, this is the, the, the plot of the entire book hangs on this, that Aslan is on the move. The hope of Narnia is not in the courage of the main characters, not in the courage of these four children. It's their ability to trust that Aslan the godlike lion who created and rules Narnia, that Aslan is on the move. And here's the thing that God is showing us in this beautiful story, that if you want to share the comfort of God, you need to focus on the glory of God because only God can save you and only God can save your world. It's not about the moves that you make, but it's about the reality that God is on the move. And what kind of move does God make? This brings us to our last point, the grace that changes everything. Simeon also says, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's in verses 34 to 35. Now that doesn't sound very comforting, does it? Imagine you tell your mom that you've gotten sick and she calls, don't worry, honey, I'll be right over with the sword. All right. Not so comforting. Throughout the Bible, the sword, actually, sword, the sword of God actually represents God's judgment. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God in Genesis chapter 3, what did he do? He kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, but he didn't just kick them out. He left an angel holding a flaming sword to guard the entrance of Eden so that they could never return. They could never come back to him. The only way back to God was through the sword, the sword of God's judgment. The evil inside of us, the treachery inside of us, the sin inside of us had to die before we could restore relationship with God. 
And it's this, the sword of God's judgment, this idea that God is out to get us, that God knows us and does not approve of us. This is the idea that prevents us from coming to God. It prevents us from getting close to God, especially when we're suffering and especially when we most desperately need God's comfort. We're afraid of God's judgment. We're afraid that if God says no to our requests, it means that there's something wrong with us. We're afraid that God doesn't care about us. But the sword Simeon prophesies about here is not purely a sword of judgment. He says this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. See, Jesus will not only cause people to fall, he will cause people to rise. His sword will not only judge and condemn, it will also redeem and raise up. If God only wanted to judge the world, he didn't have to send Jesus into it. God could bring judgment at any time, but only Jesus, only Jesus could redeem people from their sin. Listen to the way that the prophet Isaiah describes the Messiah in Isaiah 53. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds, we are healed. The incredible message of Christmas is that Jesus, who is fully God and fully human, took the sword of judgment that we deserve so that we could have life, so that we could have forgiveness, so we could have an eternal reward. At the end of The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, and fair warning, I'm about to spoil the book, but it's been out for a while. Aslan finally saves Edmund. What is the move? What's the tactical move that Aslan makes? He's been on the move. What move does Aslan make to save Edmund? Well, he doesn't save Edmund through judgment. He saves Edmund through sacrificial mercy. Aslan offers himself as a sacrifice in Edmund's place. And Edmund is set free because Aslan is put to death on the stone table. And Aslan did this because of this deep magic that says when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start to work backwards. Aslan's sacrificial death on the stone table is a metaphor for the cross because on the cross, Jesus was pierced for our sins, crushed for our transgressions, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. The sword of God's grace changes everything because it doesn't bring death, it brings life. Because it doesn't cut us down, it raises us up. And if you believe this, if you believe that God really loves you, that he wants to save you, that he has given his son to redeem you, then his sword of grace will raise you up and make you whole. Then you will know in the depths of your soul that there is a God who didn't stand at a comfortable distance when he saw your pain, but drew near to empty himself to make you whole. 
when the sacrifice of Jesus comforts you, it changes the way that you see yourself. And it changes the way that you see other people. So we'll close with this. A few years ago, The Guardian posted this beautiful piece about a, the special kind of bond that cancer survivors have with one another. And the author, a woman named Kira Goldenberg, she talks about how cancer survivors have this special bond because they can understand what uh, each person is going through better than anyone else. But there's a dark side to their bond because at any moment, anyone in the community of cancer survivors stops surviving. At any moment, one of them may stop getting better. But this doesn't harden them. It actually softens them. It increases their love for one another. So listen to what Goldenberg writes. She says, there's a flip side to the grief cycle of survivalship. Everyone who gets sicker instead of better needs empathy more than I don't need pain because I'm the lucky one. I'm healthy and I've had wonderful caring friends encouraging me the whole time, including people I've only known digitally and people who live far away. Returning the love is the least I can do. You see, a Christian is essentially a spiritual cancer survivor. We've survived the ruin of sin. We should have been left to die, but Jesus, the light and glory of the world, was pierced for our sins. We're being healed by his wounds. And this creates a special bond with other people who are sinners because we also are sinners. And that means that no matter what you're going through, if Jesus is your savior, you can always see there is someone else who needs your empathy more than you do because in Christ, you are the lucky one. You are the fortunate one. You have a wonderful savior who cares for you and loves you and who makes you whole. And so do you know how fortunate you are that Jesus came to die for your sin? If you don't, you can know it today. You could put your life in his hands. You could put your faith in him. And that's what this table represents. This is a table for the lucky ones. It's a table for the fortunate ones. It's a table for those who know that they have no moves to make, but God is on the move. And he has made the most unimaginable move by sending his son to die on the cross to pay for our sin and reverse death itself. And so on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. We pray that you would use this bread, this wine, to unite us to Jesus and to one another. 
that we'd be united by the grace that changes everything, that we would be changed, that we would be lifted up even as we partake of these costly gifts. And God, we pray that you would receive glory. In Jesus' name, amen.